The all-new Hyundai 2024 Santa Fe is equipped with everything you need to break free from the dull work week and embark on an adventurous weekend with your family. The all-new Hyundai Santa Fe's features ensure that you can take on any adventure. What kind of features? Well, how about the available H-Track all-wheel drive so you can take on the dirt trails and kick up some mud? Or the standard third-row seating so your whole family can experience the thrill together? How about available dual wireless charging pads so no one gets stuck in the great outdoors with a dead phone? We're always trying to think about those great spring and summer getaways, but with a car like the Hyundai Santa Fe, anywhere can be your next adventure. To learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe, go to HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for complete details. Learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for complete details. To the house, This is unbelievable. Welcome to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson and Barton Simmons. It's your call for the best college football coverage. From National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between, CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast here on CBS Sports. That's Barton Simmons. That's Tom Fernelli. I'm Chip Patterson. It's a Monday, so yes, that means coming up in a little bit, all you Cover 3 loyal podcast listeners, you will get those mailbag questions answered. Remember, if you want to be a part of a future mailbag segment, the way that you do it is you go to the Cover 3 College Football Podcast page, give a five-star rating. You can give a review. We really appreciate it. We take notes. Uh, it allows us to, to better shape the show, to give you what you want to have in your ear pods, buds, whatever you, however you will listen to it. Maybe you listen to this podcast on your office speakers out loud so all of your coworkers can hear it. Barton, Tom, I hope that that's how everyone listens to it so that we can reach as many people as possible. How are you all doing? Fantastic. Wonderful. It's snowing. It's it's snowing a little bit. Got a little, little snow flurries here in Nashville. Is, or is wow. that just frozen tears of Titans fans? No, no tears. You know, this was, uh, I think the Titans fans just started figuring out that the Titans were good right around the time the Chiefs game kicked off. Like, it was <laughs> one of those things, like, the season sort of snuck up on everybody. Like, they started two and four. No one thought they were any good. They grinded out a few wins. Finally got into the playoff last weekend of the year and then win a couple games and, Think you that's you know can't be too upset after thinking we were mediocre all year long. When it's Ryan Tannehill leading the way, conference championship game is a is a good season. No doubt. But <laughs> holy cow, man. Chiefs, those guys are fast. Those guys are good. Yeah, it turns out if you don't like get pressure on Patrick Mahomes and you just allow the Chiefs receivers to run around for a good ten seconds, they're gonna beat you a lot. Mm. Yeah, it's probably pretty good if you do get pressure on them too, and you just manned up on those speedsters. It's a little bit of a tricky, tricky position. It was so tricky that the defensive coordinator retired. He was like, "Oh, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do this again." Well, that hey, that's a that's a good uh, segue into some of the some of the topics we wanted to make sure that we hit on here at the top of the show before we dive into the your questions and 
and our answers to those questions because when Mike Vrabel got the Tennessee Titans job, I don't remember if it was immediate, but him tapping Kerry Coons, I believe, was front when uh, he was on the the Ohio State staff. So he goes to be the defensive backs coach for Vrabel and the Titans. Now, with a shakeup on the Ohio State defensive staff, Ryan Day brings Kerry Coombs back to Columbus. Then he's going to be uh, the new defensive coordinator for the Buckeyes. This feels like uh, like just sort of moving the trading cards around, but I guess uh, I'll, I'll throw to you first, Barton. Is there like a big recruiting angle to this in terms of what he was able to do for Ohio State's defense before he went to the NFL? Because we're talking about clearly one of the top position coaches in developing defensive backs in all of football if you're going from Ohio State to Tennessee. So now as he's coming back, what is what does this really do in terms of the, the way that you look at the Buckeyes and, and their development and their recruiting plan? From a recruiting standpoint, this is a this is a home run. I mean, okay, he, this guy's a stud recruiter. He's he's been phenomenal at evaluating, recruiting, developing the cornerback position. Um, you know, at, how is he as a defensive coordinator? Like, there's no real way to know. I don't think. But but the fact, I mean, I guess Craig Madison's still there, right? And so you step in and you just sort of backfill alongside. Greg Madison, you you fill in for um, Jeff Halfley, who's out as the as the DB presence, like the back end part of that relationship. That, I mean, that Larry Johnson is still there, right? Larry Johnson's yeah. still there, yeah. So I mean, um, no, in terms of talent acquisition and talent development, there, there's this guy's as good as it gets at defensive back, and so that's that's a huge huge pickup, I think, for Ohio State. Tom, you have thoughts? Uh, I mean, I think what he's getting one point two million, something like that. Yeah, I think that's right. He's gonna be like the highest paid assistant on the staff. Uh, I think. Yeah, I mean, I I think Madison is there. He's co coordinator with Madison. And I think that part of it is that you know if you're gonna convince a guy to give up an NFL gig, you kind of have to give him that big kind of title so i don't know it remains to be seen if he's going to be like calling plays or if it's going to be one's going to be a passing game coordinator one's going to be run game coordinator like you see that a lot now but no i i think that you lose halfley who clearly if you look at the defensive backs that ohio state has you know produced the last year with halfley you need somebody who can come in and do that he was great with defensive backs coombs has shown that he could develop defensive backs so it makes sense He's obviously been there. He's worked there. He knows what he's got to do. He knows what's expected. So, I mean, I think it's a it's a very sensible hire. And it's still kind of strange, though, because you don't usually see guys going from college to the NFL and then going back to the college for, like, a coordinator role. Usually it's, you know, it's like a head coach kind of move. But clearly he enjoys being at Ohio State, so. Yeah, if you're going to be if, – if you're looking around and – the Titans defensive staff is a, is in a little bit of a, a shakeup moment. And now all of a sudden you can go get a co-coordinator title at one of the true blue bloods, the finely tuned engine that is uh, the Ohio State Buckeyes, especially when you're going to be going into next season, chance to compete for a national championship. I mean, that's that seems to me like, a as we saw from Jeff Halfley, that seems to me like as a surefire, a launching pad to being a head coach as anything else. So... Congrats to you, Coach Coombs. You could be on your way. Also in the Big Ten, we've got some turnover for Scott Frost's staff at Nebraska. We've got uh, 
Matt Lubick replaces Troy Walters as the offensive coordinator. I think that when it's a Scott, how about this? I think that when we've got offensive coordinators shifting under Scott Frost, I am probably unfairly going to go to a very Auburn Gus Malzahn state of mind, which is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand that, you know, you, you're going to change out these positions and, and there's going to be some impact, but I mean, it's still Scott Frost's offense, right? Like, it, it, what, where, where would I be misstepping there to try and take that same kind of approach to to Scott Frost, Nebraska? I, I think you're probably that's probably fair. Like, I just, yes, I agree with that. I think the my like my takeaway in this is just that Scott Frost is feeling the the sense of urgency and getting something done here because. This is a guy, and Troy Walters has been with them for the past four years, um, and I, I, I can't imagine that this was a flippant decision. Um, and I, I and it's not as if, like like you said, I mean, basically, uh, Matt Lubick is is just someone that comes in that has a a, a, a history with Frost from back to their days at Oregon, uh, has an understanding of what he wants to accomplish, but isn't isn't like a I wouldn't think isn't bringing some new uh, wrinkle and some crazy new dynamic to this. It, 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 the, the guy's been out of coaching for the last year. I mean, he he left Washington to to not just he hadn't just been sitting out because he didn't have a job. He actually like left to be to go into private business. And so I just don't think he's coming with with some new offense they're going to install. This is still going to be the Scott Frost show. It's still going to be his deal. It's just now he has a guy that. He trusts, and I think that he's again just looking at this in terms of an urgency that they got to get this fixed, and they got to figure out what's going on and get some new eyes on this because it's they're, they're not it's not cutting it right now. Yeah, he left. He was like it said a high level job at a Fort Collins, Colorado credit union, which is not that's that's a move that's even rarer than NFL coach leaving to come be a coordinator at the college level. That's yeah. Uh, I, I I kind of agree with what you guys are saying. I don't think that this is really going to change anything about how Nebraska's offense looks. I think this is just one of those things where you know maybe it's clearly not been working the way that they wanted it to work. So maybe sometimes you just need to get a new voice in there, a new perspective on things. And I mean, I read in the article about this in that uh, the Omaha World Herald that Lubick, while he wasn't coaching last year. It, he was apparently consulting with Frost, mm. you know, because they are friends about stuff that they could do with the offense. So while, yeah, he wasn't on a sideline and he wasn't working for a team, apparently he was still somewhat involved in what Nebraska maybe had going on last season. Those credit union hours. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. That old nine to five Ready to watch some film. Uh, all right, story pitch. It was dealing with investment services and home mortgages where – Matt Lubick really found the secret sauce to Nebraska's offense. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Study he found all, all the market inefficiencies uh from his from his little corner eighty five thousand dollar a year investment services office. He was gotta be a generalist. Yeah. Gotta be a generalist. That's right. <laughs> cross training across all fields. Good for Scott Frost opening his mind up like that. And uh stinks for Troy Walters that this guy just took his job over text messages on Saturday nights. <laughs> Shooting him IMs. Yeah. Just like, you know, just nothing else to do, but just pick apart Troy Walters, offense. Mm. Just bored on a, just bored on Thursday afternoons. 
cold blooded. Uh, okay, before I want to make sure we got a lot of moving pieces for the for Georgia, but uh, first things potentially looked a little tenuous. Uh, as they continue to be, and as they probably will be, honestly, for USC football here, as uh, as we continue to 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 charge ahead, um, this so Graham Harrell was getting attention for NFL offensive coordinator jobs, including for Doug Peterson's staff at the Philadelphia Eagles. So he ends up turning those opportunities down. He's going to stay at USC. And now it looks like USC is going after Todd Orlando, who you may remember was the former Texas defensive coordinator who had maybe landed somewhere else for like a hot second already. Okay. So he was fired by Tom Herman, lands at Texas Tech, and now it looks like he might be headed to USC does Graham Tom does Graham Harrell staying uh give you any con- like any more or less confidence in Clay Helton's 2020 and does Todd Orlando serve as a value add for the staff Yeah a little bit I mean I think we've discussed on here a lot of times our thoughts about Clay Helton I think they're pretty well established and I think that if that's going to work under Helton at USC, he needs to be surrounded by, you know, strong coordinators. He needs guys who know what they're doing, guys who can implement it, and guys who are innovative. And I think that if you look at USC's offense last year, I thought Graham Harrell did a good job with a transition from what, you know, that typical pro-style USC offense we'd always seen to more of an air raid approach. And I thought that, you know, with a freshman quarterback, they picked up on it pretty quickly and they played well for the most part. And you would think that going into the second year, we're going to see even more improvements with an entire another spring and a summer and fall camp getting ready with that offense going into the season. And I think it bodes well that there has been so much interest in Harrell from other places, not just, you know, like the Eagles are interested in them. NFL teams are interested. You know, Texas was linked there for a while. So. I think that gives you a sign of the fact of what people think of him as an offensive coordinator. So I think keeping him for his second year at USC is a good thing for Clay Helton and USC going forward. And as for Todd Orlando, I don't think Todd Orlando was the problem with Texas's defense last year. I think Texas's defense was decimated by injuries and it played that way. The secondary got torn apart and, you know, the big 12 is a bad place to have a dead secondary for the most part. And I feel like, in a way, Orlando was kind of like a sacrificial lamb for, you know, because after the season Texas had, somebody's head had to roll. And I think that Orlando might have been that head. So I think that they've upgraded at defensive coordinator if Orlando takes that job from Clancy Pendergrass. I think that's a move forward. So, yeah, I think that these Harold and Orlando, I think, would be two good coordinator hires for USC as far as a coaching aspect. But. Again, there's still like the questions about the leadership and the kind of culture that they've got going on there that we've got to figure out still that I think will be what ultimately decides at the end of the day. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, the uh, in other news for USC related to their offense, Tyler Vaughn's is returning. I don't know if y'all saw that. So they've got, nope. they've got a quarterback back, that Tyler Vaughn's back, they got Amon Ross St. Brown back, they got – I mean, they're going to have plenty of talent on offense. Uh, Graham Harrell, I was almost hoping you would take the the Eagles job just for the the chaos of it all, just for the storyline. I mean, that was just going to be that was going to be a throw your hands up if you're Clay Helton and be like, good, you know, what else can go wrong kind of deal. Um, so, but that didn't happen, and that's great news. That's you know, USC's got a real chance offensively to be pretty good. Um, 
you know, I, my, my my one question here with Todd Orland, and I, I, I agree, he's an upgrade from Clancy Pendergast, who's who was never really um, confidence inspiring as a defensive coordinator at USC. My my question a little bit is like, I feel like in Todd Orlando's defense is partially because of where he's been. Um, you know, he's been at UConn, FIU, Utah State, Houston, largely places where to win the big games, like you're a little bit um, outmanned athletically um, from a talent perspective. And so like he's, he's fashioned this defense that's, that's almost um, accounts for not being as dominant up front and, you know, being more of a aggressive, like three man front that's, that's linebacker heavy and, and um, plays to more of a undersized unit. And, I feel like at USC, like they need to, they need to get back to where they're recruiting those really talented defensive linemen and can overpower people at the line of scrimmage and, and develop those guys. And um, the lack of development there, even though they've got talent there, is sort of what's been missing. And so I'm just curious how this is going to work um, schematically and whether it's going to be the fit, you know, that it's uh, that 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 USC needs um, defensively. I still, you know, the ex- I assume if he's going to USC, he's getting like a three-year deal and. Um, cause why would you go there when you, you know, Clay Helton's might be out the door. Uh, but it'll be, I think it gives him a fighting chance. You know, I think this is, and again, like Tom said, I think this is an upgrade at defense coordinator. USC to the playoff in 2020. <laughs> Someone's got to do it. I feel it. <laughs> Tyler Vaughn's is back. We got good quarterback options. Graham Harrell would have left if he thought that he they didn't have a winner in 2020. Goodness I mean, gracious. Graham, Graham Harrell's sitting pretty because regardless of what happens, they're going to score points next year. Yes. And 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 so it's – um, yeah. yeah Hell, sure, Graham Harrell it. might be the head coach after next year. <laughs> right? Yeah. Todd, Todd, I've for some reason I because Clancy Pendergrass spent so much time at USC and because USC's defense has talented players, like especially on on the back end of it, that just it seems like wouldn't play well, or maybe they were just out of position. Like the because the bowl game is what really pushed it over the edge for him. Like you can't you can't show up to the Holiday Bowl and then have Iowa just run up 45, 49 points on you. No. There's a lot of points. Yeah, that's just letting yeah. an Iowa offense that was allergic to scoring touchdowns and red zone opportunities through most of the regular season to be that successful was a horrible look. And it it did make me wonder if just a change in the voice, you know, just a little bit of a shakeup. Like Todd, Todd Orlando is going to come in, and I wonder if just not being Clancy Pendergrass is going to be a little bit of an upgrade there or at least a, a, a change that could generate some better results. But – we will see. He's, he's got something to prove for sure, too. Yeah. Um, and now that brings us to the Georgia Bulldogs. The Georgia Bulldogs. Uh, I I think that. Okay, we'll just. I'll go ahead and throw this one ass out there, because this is going to be. Uh, this will get us there. Uh, Neo. <laughs> Neo one one two nine says. Why do you only talk about UGA when it's something bad happening to us? And why do you drop kids' rankings when they commit to us? 
I really like. No way. Hold on, hold on. I really like listening to Barton and Tom, and the other dude is okay at best. <laughs> but, but, uh, wish you wouldn't be so hard on my all caps dogs, and only talk when it's bad news. Please quit downing our program. So, on behalf of Barton, Tom, and the other dude who's okay at best. <laughs> let's talk about something that might be good uh, for the Georgia Bulldogs. And it's going to be uh, a change up in their offensive staff. So Todd Monken was the offensive coordinator for the Cleveland Browns. Of course, uh, you, you recognize that last name. He's been around the block in the college ranks as well. He will be the offensive coordinator for Georgia. Jamie Newman already announced that he will be going there as a graduate transfer. So, um, this is good news, right? We are going to answer Neo's request that we are going to talk about Georgia when something good has happened. Like the, this is all a positive development for Kirby Ball, right? I love this hire. Love it. I love it. I love. I love Munkin. I like. You know, I didn't think that that was the kind of direction that they were going to go. I'm thrilled they did it. I wanted Todd Munkin to be Illinois' offensive coordinator a few years ago. He's an Illinois native, but he's a guy who's, you know, an NFL guy. And I felt like the only way he would come back to college was if it was at like a high profile school like Georgia. And obviously, this is that kind of high profile job. And I think that this is a perfect opportunity for him. I think this is the kind of thing that Georgia needed to do because, as we've said all year long, they had all this talent on offense, they had a really good NFL, you know, talent quarterback and it felt like they had leash a leash on it all the time and Todd Munkin is not going to have a leash on the offense this is a guy who at Oklahoma State the year Oklahoma State nearly reached the BCS title game Todd Munkin was the offensive coordinator he's put together very good offenses at Southern Miss his win-loss record wasn't great but the offenses were explosive and high scoring and he helped get Nick Mullins to the NFL where you know he's a backup with the 49ers and last year after Jimmy Garoppolo got hurt Mullins came in and took over the job after CJ Beathard got hurt and he played very well for the 49ers for a while there I think that he's very good with quarterbacks. I think that he's very good with offenses. He's going to get he's good. Georgia's offense is about to become a lot more vertical than they have seen. And I think that when you combine their offensive line and their run game and the fact that they're going to be able to stretch the field in the passing game, everything is going to be working a lot better and a lot more explosive and a lot higher scoring than what we saw this year. I love this higher. Look at that. That's positivity right there. I'm telling you. That's a Georgia homers on this pod. I think that, first of all, I think that the reason that we got that, that we are being painted as Georgia haters is because we typically are commenting on the narrative. And I think we've all been maybe a little bit bearish relative to the rest of the market on Georgia this year. And that's that's just that's just a reality. I think we were pretty positive on Georgia last year um, relative to the rest of the country. So, um, you know, I, I, we're, we, we have a ton of respect for Georgia. I think here's, here's my take on it. You know, we've seen the, like I, I've been leery of hiring an NFL coach and just assuming it's an upgrade. Hell, it happened at Georgia and it was a it was a disaster. Brian Schottenheimer came in and was the Georgia OC for one year, and that just wasn't it. That was not the answer. That was in the Mark Rick regime, I think, wasn't it? Um, uh, was it? No, was that Kirby? I think that was Kirby's first year. 
Well, maybe. Maybe it was, or maybe it was Rick's last year. Yeah. I think it was Rick's last year. Uh, but either way, like that, that wasn't um, that wasn't a good hire because that was not a guy that had much. Like that, that was purely a pro style guy with no real college background to speak of. Uh, I remember when Derek Mason hired Carl Durrell, and that was supposed to be like some home run hire as his offensive coordinator. And it's like Carl Durrell was there was no reason to think Carl Durrell was going to be a good coach there other than the fact that he had just been a head coach before and was coming from the NFL. And so like, I don't think you can just paint something as a good hire because it's an NFL guy going to college. But I think, but I, but I think that this is, is actually a good hire because you look at the, the diversity of his backgrounds, you look at, you know, he's coached under Les miles coached under Mike Gundy coached, you know, had a ton of success as a, as a head coach taking a team that was 0 and 12 to nine and five, three years later. Uh, and, and I just think when you look at the sort of the places he's been, the people he's coached with, I think he's going to, I think he's the right kind of hire that Georgia needs. I'll tell you another hire I like here. And this was, this was reported today. Buster Faulkner, who is the Southern Miss offensive coordinator was at Arkansas state and MTSU before that is coming on as I think an analyst of some sort. So you're getting a you're getting a group of five successful offensive coordinator coming as an analyst and just for whatever reason and again I'm not like this isn't just some sort of like spin like I don't know Buster Faulkner but just having I have noticed all of his stops him putting together really creative good like effective offenses and I think to have a voice like that inserted into the room too to me like we've always said this, like we're, we're not all looking at this and Kirby smart doesn't know things need to get fixed. Like Kirby's as competitive as any of us. Kirby knows things need to get fixed as much as any of us. I, I think the moves he's making with these hires are an indication that he can't just, you know, try to find the next downhill pro style guy and, and expect it to work. I think he's making uh, strategic hires of guys that can get this offense to be more, effective and and creative and i, f- I feel kind of good about the the direction of things right now yeah i'm gonna say this right now georgia fans who think we're haters going into this offseason and going into next season the narrative will be that georgia lost all those guys in the offensive line it lost jake from it lost blah 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 and it's gonna be all to talk about is this the year that florida's gonna be able to you know get past and win the east and it's you know maybe somebody else will become like a dark horse <laughs> candidate in the division I am thrilled about that because that means there's going to be a lot more value on Georgia as an SEC champion odds-wise, or SEC East champion in the odds-wise than there probably should be. And I'm going to hammer Georgia yes! to win the SEC East. Yes! Give me some of that Georgia stock. I went in on that. All right. I yeah. buy a couple of those tickets. Georgia, cover three podcast, Georgia homers in 2020. Yeah. <laughs> new, new, new year, new us. This is the way we're going. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, are you kidding me? People are really going to talk like Florida's inferior talent is going to best Georgia? No way. Georgia's winning the East. Georgia's defense is going to be like, like silly good this year. And mm-hmm. and and I think if they and and look, I think Jamie Newman is going to be able to allow them to do some things, probably offensively, that they they maybe weren't comfortable doing with Jake Fromm. And I think that there's a continued development. Like, look, if they can just find a way to get their their skill players the ball 
in, in, in more creative ways and more effective ways. Like this is, I mean, that's all that was missing was just like some wrinkles offensively, just a little bit of just a, just like lace it with something unique and, uh, and, and you're, you're in trouble defensively against them. And I think they'll get that this year. George yeah, Pickens going to be back. Hmm. All, all our complaints about Georgia all season long weren't about talent, weren't wasn't about recruiting, wasn't about the defense. It was just that the offense was antiquated, and if they would only modernize their offense, this was a team that all of a sudden becomes like an Alabama or an LSU. It becomes a legit contender in the SEC, and they've done exactly what we asked them to do. So we're all on board, clearly. Coming up on the other side, your questions and our answers and touching on things like Joe Burrow, Michigan, Urban Meyer, Travis Etienne, and the Egg Bowl next. The perfect combination of versatile athleisure and training apparel has arrived. Thanks to the visionary minds of New Balance, Clutch Athletics, and Rich Paul, the designs reflect the heart of the athlete and the spirit of the community. With rising defensive football stars Will Anderson and Chase Young on the roster, Clutch Athletics brings the best innovative gear to all athletes, giving them style and performance on and off the field. Learn more and purchase Clutch Athletics at NewBalance.com. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right. Now, we've called this out before, but in case listeners hadn't heard it, uh, and it, because it was a question, I figured that I'd put it, throw it in there, let our, let our friend get another victory lap. Lucas <laughs> asks... Barton, I remember listening to an off-season episode a couple years back. Shout out to you, Lucas, for listening for a couple years now. And I seem to recall you raving about Joe Burrow. What did you see in Burrow at the time, and did you think he'd turn out this good? That's, first of all, that's a great um, PSA, Lucas, to all the listeners. You know, you, you can get some nuggets in the off-season now. Don't, don't just leave us just because you don't have games to recap. we got some good stuff for you. So here... Like I don't know when I, I don't know what time you're referring to because I've we've talked touched on Burrow a lot over the years. There's a, there's a couple points that I think, like one, is spring game analysis. Like don't forget that Joe Burrow outplayed Dwayne Haskins and JT Barrett in a spring game a few years ago, um, and then he continued to be neck and neck with Dwayne Haskins throughout, and the feedback continued to be that Joe Burrow is a real deal. And I was talking to a coach at the convention about this, too. Is like when you look at Joe Burrow, and this is retrospect. This is like retroactive discussion. I, I, I hadn't. This wasn't part of my analysis in, at the time, contemporary, contemporaneously. But when you look at Joe Burrow and what he does well on the field. It's like so much of it is feel, pocket presence, um, and and just instincts in the pocket and when, when bullets are flying. And when you think about how that's going to manifest in practice compared to say a Dwayne Haskins, like when they're in seven on seven, Dwayne Haskins is probably going to look better. 
when they're in team periods and no one could touch the quarterback, Dwayne Haskins is probably going to look better because he just has a bigger arm. But we saw Joe Burrow's ability to uh, extend plays and and use his legs as one of like the and and just the his his feel for pocket movements subtleties as one of the best things about him. And it, it's going to be hard for that to shine through in in you know in two hand touch in practice. And so I think that was was part. But like ultimately the, the second tier to like my my Joe Burrow appreciation was when even when he was okay in his first year at LSU. There was a level of confidence and fire in his eyes and competitiveness and no no back down that we hadn't seen from any other LSU quarterback. Um, and so, you know, dating back to what he did in high school and being a multi-sport athlete and a stud on the basketball court and completing like 80% of his passes for Athens High School and all that stuff, like the the, the traits have always been there. Uh, and yet, I mean, all that said, look, I didn't. I never, I never predicted this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I never predicted this. Yeah. All, all that said, I don't think anybody thought that Joe Burrow was going to be uh, this historically great, the greatest individual season in college football history. Is it better than Cam uh, Cam Newton? Yes. Yeah, I think Cam was more exciting as a one man force, but I think that overall, yes. I believe there is a degree of difficulty when it comes to execution that Joe Burrow has shown that exceeds what Cam was able to do as a one-man force. Right. Like like the fact that uh, he was, what, maybe probably only three or four completions away from setting the NCAA completion record too, but because there was one or two more incompletions in the national championship game, he he ends up finishing just shy of Colt McCoy, Colt McCoy's record. Can I say this? And you guys tell me if you think I'm crazy or if I'm wrong, but I think if you put Joe Burrow on that Auburn team and you put Cam Newton on this LSU team, the LSU team probably still wins the national title. The Auburn team probably doesn't yeah no i agree because i i just like yeah i think that the re, I, like I, I think cam was it, it, yeah Go amazing ahead. as you know like i said the one man show i mean he didn't have the kind of talent around him on that auburn offense like burrow has on this lsu offense no no and burrow like burrow and so burrow like as athletic as he is and all that stuff he's he can't quite be the just the one that just like no Get, you know, saddle him up and ride him to a championship game. But if you put give him some weapons, then clearly there, there's there's never been anybody better. But also, that. you know, to your point, like while the wide receivers at LSU are so much better than the wide receivers that Cam had at Auburn, I look at the growth and development of that passing game as kind of being a everyone everyone got in this together. Like the the reason that um, Jamar Chase and Justin Jefferson are are really good at the the back shoulder throws and sort of that unique placement has as much to do with Burrow and the receivers as the receivers being awesome because the exact same wide receiver group, even just one year ago, wasn't having that kind of impact. So it was like a everyone was able to improve all together. And so uh, I, f- I feel like Burrow shouldn't have that taken away from him that he had good players because even with them being uh, elite talented athletic wide receivers they were still working with a chemistry that was established by the senior quarterback 
Fair. I, yeah, agreed. All right. Will this question from BD, will Michigan ever be a relevant contender again? Things have obviously improved under Harbaugh compared to the previous 10 years, but things feel as bleak and hopeless as ever. <laughs> How does that change? Uh, BD, they, Michigan has been a relevant contender. Like very recently, as recently as just last year. I don't think things feel as bleak and hopeless. I understand that the loss to Ohio State is not uh not a fun not a fun position to be in. But uh I guess Tom I'll, like how, how how are you attacking this? I mean, yeah, they'll they're I think they're relevant right now. Whether they're a relevant contender, I think is still to be you know, determined. I think that they can be, I think, honestly, how does it change? You're going to have to beat Ohio state. That's really as simple as it gets. And it's a lot simpler said than done, but they've got to improve the talent level and they've got to beat Ohio state. And that's really all that there is left to do for the most part. I think that, you know, you, you, you made some changes last year with the offense, keep implementing that moving forward, keep bringing in more talent get some consistency and start winning those games. Like, I mean, at first it was Harbaugh can't win any against any ranked teams. And now the last few years he started beating, you know, ranked teams and like that, that let's not forget this Michigan team. What it, I know it was like a downpour, but let's not forget what Michigan did to a Notre Dame team. That was pretty damn good this year. And they <laughs> kicked their butts. I just think that it's the Ohio state monkey on their back that they've got to get off. And that's the problem for about everybody in the Big Ten right now. Yeah, I don't think that Michigan depends on how you find this, but I, I don't think in in my I don't think you can count on Michigan being a national title contender year in year out under Jim Harbaugh. I think Jim Harbaugh has got it the program to a point where he can hand it off to someone that can get Michigan to national title year in year out. I also think that Michigan is close enough that if things hit right and the right guys stick around, the right guys develop, it can have a cycle up year that is capable of winning a national title. I mean, hell, 2016 was, I mean, they were like four, five points of, of difference between 13-0 and 10-3. Um, you know, so like it's, it's, yeah, they've been close. They are close. It's things aren't desolate in Michigan. Like things are, you know, are, are, are pretty good. But I think from a, like I do think from a recruiting standpoint, we, like I've talked about this. Like they're not in the LSU, Georgia, Ohio State, Alabama, Clemson tier. When's so it? I don't think anybody, I don't think anyone that's not in that tier is really ready to compete year in year out for national championships. But they're not bleak and hopeless. No, that's what I'm saying. They're yeah. not bleak and hopeless, and I and I and I think they that in the right year it can. I think this Michigan program in its current state, in the right year, can contend for a national title. Things have to hit. Things have to like align and 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 sort of fall into place perfectly. But it's not so far away that it can't have a a a special year that it contends for a national title. I just don't think they're recruiting well enough to contend for titles year in, year out, in the way that those teams I just mentioned can. Question from Mike from ATL. Mike asks, do you think Travis Etienne's decision to come back is solely due to the other top running backs in this year's class slash next year's weaker class? 
Or should we not be surprised anymore that Dabo is able to keep getting his star players to come back for their senior year? Hey, were you guys surprised at how hard media members were going at Travis Etienne for like deciding not to I, go to the NFL? I was turned off by it, and but I was not as surprised <laughs> because it does seem as though um, that lit- litigating other people's decisions about the draft sure seems to be like a popular conversation. I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't on, that was what he announced that on Thursday, right? I don't remember what day it was. Yeah, I think that was pretty much the day my dog was getting the ACL surgery. So I was not on, I remember I didn't talk towards ACL. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. And I know it's been a great few days, but uh, no, I was, cause I remember I got home that night and I really hadn't been online all day and I was just going and I just saw Travis Etienne's coming back and I was like, what the hell? (laughs) That came out of nowhere. So. I didn't see any of the actual reaction to it. I was surprised by it. I do think that at that position, if you have the chance to go pro and you will be drafted, and probably not in the first round because we, we just rarely see running backs go early in the first round. Now, there, there's very few and far between. But I've always felt that at that position where there's only so much wear and tear on you and that the NFL has shown that they don't really, you know, like look at Raheem Mostert in the NFC Championship. That's a dude who had been you know, cut by seven teams before finally sticking on with San Francisco. And then he has a huge night against the Packers in the NFC Championship. Whereas Tevin Coleman, the guy who had been drafted and the guy who the 49ers, you know, signed as a free agent, had the injury, missed the entire game. And he really kind of had lost carries to Mostert as the season went along anyway. So I've often felt like you see stuff like that. I would get to the league as quickly as possible. If ETN wants to play for another year, whether it's because he thinks he has a chance of getting drafted higher next year or he just wants to play another year because he enjoys college, cool, man. Good for you. I probably would have made a different decision, but I'm cool with you coming back because that means I get to watch you and Trevor Lawrence and that Clemson offense for another year. All right, so let's let's consider um, – so with the time he made his decision, I guess I got Chuba Hubbard probably announced like a day or two before him that he was coming back. See, so I, I guess we – Go ahead. What did what, you say, Chip? I was going to say, I, I kind of think they're different for like one very specific reason. Attempts the, per game. Situations are, well, so, yeah, like, I guess what I was getting at initially there was pr- at least prior to Chuba, because like if we were assuming Chuba was leaving and we look forward to next year, who is the best running back in college football? If Chuba's gone, who's the best running back in college football? I guess you have Najee. Yeah, it's Najee Harris. CJ Verdell. Like, like, it's a little bit of a running back wasteland. Now, Shuba's back, okay, so that changes the narrative a little bit. Like, obviously, that's a big-time guy back. But who are you Like, who are you competing with next year? You're competing with Chuba. I guess you compete with Najee, though I, I tend to think that Travis Etienne is a, is a notch above Najee on the NFL's um, pecking order. As opposed to this year, you got Jonathan Taylor, you got DeAndre Swift, you got J.K. Dobbins. Um, I don't know, you know, but like those three guys right there are probably all above ETN uh, on on in you know on the NFL draft boards, and so you can come back, compete for a national title, and like you said, Chip, like Travis ETN is not a workhorse. Like he's not getting loaded up. Like tread on the tires isn't really that relevant of an argument here when you're talking about 
Travis Etienne and a guy that's going to have 12 carries a game and won't play in the fourth quarter in nine of his 12 regular season games. Like, I, I mean, look, I mean, if you've gone pro, more power to him. But he, he, I think he legitimately has a better opportunity to get to the first round next year. And the tread on the tires thing isn't that big of a deal. And so, like, it's a very defensible decision. Like, everyone's acting like this is some sort of – not everyone. I, I shouldn't phrase it like that. Because, but I just I, – I was annoyed at the amount of people that acted like this was some – like financially irresponsible decision to make. Like he can do whatever he wants, and and it's you know Clemson seems like it's a pretty good place to play football, and he's gonna go. He's compete for another national title, and he's gonna try to get his money up and and get into the first round next year. Here's a question: yeah. since I didn't see it, and you don't have to name names. The people who are reacting in the way that you're speaking are they the same people who get mad at people for getting mad at players for sitting out bowl games too? Because that's kind of Okay, no, cool. no, okay, they cool. were, no, they are on the like, like some of the people like they're typically they're typically like the com- combative, you know, they're like the combative liberal left to to to, to fight the conservative right of like you got to play in bowl games and like you should never go pro early kind of guys. OK, so, like, I, I just like, want to make sure there's consistency. That's right. all I ever care about. <laughs> right. Tra- yeah. Travis Etienne, freshman season, leads the team in rushing, leads the team in rushing touchdowns, 8.23 attempts per game. Sophomore season, ACC player of the year, 1,600 yards, 24 touchdowns, 13.6 attempts per game. Junior season, 1,600 yards, 19 rushing touchdowns, ACC offensive player of the year, 13.8 attempts per game. He's the king of like – 14 carries, 140 yards, two touchdowns. It's yeah. It's just not – but Chuba Hubbard a little bit different. And to to answer like yeah, – like, Yeah, if you want to get mad, it's like if you want to like go off on – like Chuba is the one that makes less sense to me, even though I was probably more surprised at Travis Etienne just because I just assumed he was gone. But, yeah, to your point, Chuba, because of the way they used him this year, like that's one that seems like he could have just – bounced out of here and done this thing. And I just, I, it, I, I do think that we've hit a point with Clemson where it shouldn't be that like it is Trevor Lawrence ain't going to do it. But, um, Christian Wilkins came back for his senior season. Cleland Furl came back for his senior season. You know, we, this, it's not, uh, it is not something that is uncommon within that football program to, to just think that the, the NFL is going to be there. And they've just been able to build up that kind of confidence uh, within the program that you're you're still going to be able to find your way to the NFL. I mean, Hunter Renfro, he decided to turn down the NFL and came back for nine straight seasons. Incredible. <laughs> Incredible what Dabo Sweeney has built down there. Um, next question. This one is oh, – I love it. This one is from hashtag fade the bulls. U- USF fan. Number one – uh, what can we expect from you guys over the off season? I love the podcast. I would hope to hear more from you guys year round. So yes, we are still going to be coming at you weekly, a couple times a week here in January, February, and then maybe once spring practice comes back around. But it, you know, we'll be hitting uh, sort of our own angles to the NFL draft. I mean, guys, you we want to? Are we still thinking book club at some point this off season? Yeah. Oh, yeah, book club. Book clubs on the horizon. Uh, signing day. We yes. We you sh- you should expect 
that we're still going to be checking in uh, very frequently throughout the offseason. And then, hey, count them up starting in July is when we'll get into the win totals. Uh, number two within Fade the Bulls question, I am a USF fan. When can we stop fading the Bulls? Is it realistic to <laughs> three year fade at this point, hadn't it? <laughs> Is it realistic to hope that we can eventually jump to the Big Twelve with UCF? The Big Twelve move is very popular to talk about amongst Bulls fans. Uh we can I think we can stop fading the Bulls now. I'm gonna jump on board and be a believer in the uh the Jeff Scott operation. I think that we're talking about decidedly different uh head coaches in terms of where they are in their careers when they've arrived in Tampa. And I think that Jeff Scott will be able to provide a little bit of, bo- of a boost that will take that program. And and maybe maybe just Jeff Scott over Charlie Strong is one win. You know, just like one game where USF will not inexplicably quit or uh, the coaching staff will decide to use its timeouts instead of letting the clock run out in a loss. Like... There, there are lots of reasons to think that Jeff Scott and his coaching staff might be able to uh, to create some sort of positivity there. I'm, I'll go ahead and head this one off. I mean, do you guys think that this whole Big Twelve thing that feels that feels very message boardy? And I don't, I don't think that I can sit in our position and entertain that. I think you can be excited about the USF Bulls without having it hinge on getting an invitation to the Big Twelve. Uh, first of all. Slate is wiped clean as far as fade USF, but I'm not considering myself a believer yet. I'm gonna I'm gonna wait and see. But yeah, I think the fading automatically is a principle we can get rid of because most of the reasons it was for Charlie Strong. Are gone. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but uh, I mean, I can't sit here and say we're never going to see conference <laughs> realignment again, especially with the Big Twelve. But I think that if it happens again or when it happens again, the kind of conference realignment we're going to see is not going to be power five leagues, poaching teams or schools from other smaller leagues. I think it's just going to be power five teams breaking apart to form their own kind of, you know, league and maybe conferences become somewhat of a thing of the past in that league. Now, maybe there are some group of five programs that they would look at and say, all right, they're big enough to bring them along, and maybe you know USF ends up being one of those programs. But I don't think that if USF or UCF ever move on from the American to a you know larger kind of conference, it's going to be in the Power Five context. I think it'll just be a completely different entity. I don't know about all the conference realignment stuff. That's 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 over my head. That's above my pay grade. I will say though, the Jeff Scott had ma- has managed to like low key create this sort of star studded USF coaching staff. So he's got Glenn Spencer as a defensive coordinator. That's not necessarily a big name. That's a good hire. Former Charlotte Charlie head coach, Charlie Weiss Jr. Uh, like all 25 years old of him <laughs> is his offensive coordinator. Former five star Daquan Bowers is his defensive line coach. Trevor Lawrence's high school coach, Joey King, is his is his tight ends coach. Pat White from West Virginia fame is his running backs coach. I just kind of this like this is like a it's like a mini celebrity list of, of uh, assistant coaches. So I'm I'm a believer in the in the Jeff Scott era at USF. 
And uh, one final piece of the question, expectations for Florida next year, what are the chances of a playoff berth? Well, you're, you're talking to a very pro-Georgia podcast. <laughs> yes. And so whatever happens for Florida, you know, they'll be looking up at the Bulldogs. Um, but I, I, I would expect they'll be a very strong contender in the East. I like, I like Florida. I think Florida's pretty, pretty damn good. Is Kyle, suck. Go dogs. Is Kyle Trask going to be the starting quarterback there? Yeah, I think so. I assume is that, so, right? Is Emory Jones going to be entering the transfer portal next fall? Right? <laughs> I mean, but that's because that's the question, is if you've spent two years using Emory Jones in, in specialty packages and kind of like slowly but surely, you know, working him in, putting more and more on his plate, shouldn't 2020 be the season that he takes over? Well, no, not necessarily. I mean, Kyle because Tr- Kyle Trask is still there, and Kyle Trask is is proven to be pretty dependable himself. Are are you, are you playing Emory Jones over Kyle Trask? I mean, I'm not. Maybe you would. Would you? Mm. I don't think Kyle Trask did anything last year to deem not being the presumptive starter going into 2020. Yeah, he also probably didn't do anything to deem this not. Like being an open competition, I yeah, I think you're allowed to to, to mm-hmm. say this is a competition. Yeah. Also, okay, I would if if I am Dan Mullen, I would like for it to be a competition. I would I would I, very, I would be very very happy if Kyle Trask is the starter because he won a fierce battle against Emory Jones. So okay, all right. So this is the the old question. Then all right, you want it to be a competition? Yes. All right. So who do you want to win the competition? Though are you saying you think Florida is better off if Kyle Trask wins the competition over Emory Jones? No, I think Florida is better off if Emory Jones outplays Kyle Trask for that job. I would probably agree with that too. Yeah. Kyle Trask was a great story this year, but man, there's a limit when you're trying to make the jump from. 11 and 3 or uh you know 10 and 2 to going 12 and 0 and competing for a playoff spot or 11 and 1 <laughs> man great great stories fall second to uh to just raw talent and i think that Emory Jones has just got a little bit more of that all right we got a couple fun ones that i want to make sure we get to all right this one from Tank Solomons who would your dream coaches film room panel be Pick five coaches who you think would provide the most insightful commentary. Now, see, I, I, I wrote this question down, and I, I didn't give much respect to insightful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, insightful is, is up for interpretation. You okay. can take insightful and replace any adjective you want there. Okay, because I'm, I didn't go insightful. <laughs> at all <laughs> i well so i did i actually i couldn't this this question is is so far up my alley i i i came up with like four different scenarios of like <laughs> what you're looking for in a film room okay and so i've got a couple answers all right step up okay all right so my first film room scenario is just is just like camaraderie just just buddies in a room having fun eating pizza and that film room of just like all love is paul christ yes lovey smith mel tucker and kevin sumlin like those four guys it's just gonna be just happy vibes just low-key chill afternoon um 
and, and I just think I think we would all just feel better about ourselves leaving the room because because of just the, the positive energy we'd get there. Uh, the opposite of that is <laughs> the like most awkward film room. This one is, and this might be the most entertaining just based because how entertaining is it awkward, but certainly Jim Harbaugh with the clicker. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you're going to have James Franklin in there. You're going to have Chip Kelly in there, <laughs> Tom Herman, Lane Kiffin, and Mark D'Antonio just being grumpy as hell. And I feel like that is just like a bunch of personalities that are really going to great on each other and there will be no camaraderie there will be nothing but like one-upsmanship and like side eyes and like backhanded compliments third to last one this is the one I would learn the most in like I would just I would want Lincoln Riley, Dave Aranda, David Shaw and Jeremy Pruitt Mm. Dave, Dave Aranda because I just have never really heard him talk and he's supposed to be really smart but I think those four would give you some really quality commentary. And then my favorite one is like the four meatheads and dad. It's Will Muschamp, Kirby Smart, <laughs> Pat Narduzzi, Mario Cristobal, and then dad David Cutcliffe with the clicker. <laughs> Just like keeping everybody like kind of like some fight. Now, boys. I think it was like a single dad who's like, his like wife left him and he and left him just with this like maniac kids <laughs> and, and like the, and like all all four of those coaches would probably give you some great commentary yeah. too but but they're also so competitive and like such meatheads that like there'd be they, they it would just be a really fun dynamic with David Cutcliffe just kind of it's just hey guys guys now now come on let's let's reel it in you know I think that'd be fun. So my five has three coaches that are not currently employed as head coaches, but I think it'll still fly. Is this, I think this will be okay. Um, Gary Patterson is, uh, is going to be there. He does such a good job of, of breaking down defenses. He's, he is, he's been a part of the coach's film room many times over. I would like to have Brett Bielema at the table with Gary Patterson. I would like to have Steve Adazio, and I would like to have Paul Christ, like you said, and making rounding out my five from an MVP coach's film room performance when he left to go to the bathroom, but his microphone was left on <laughs> and you could hear him go into the bathroom. We're going with Larry Fedora. So Brett Bielema, Gary Patterson, Steve Adazio, Paul Christ, and Larry Fedora, they're going to eat the pizza. They're going to talk about the dudes. Uh, and th- I mean, it, I, I was really pulling from my own film room experience. A lot of these guys have brought the heat before. <laughs> yeah. Those and, guys are like the hall. Those guys are like current hall of fame. Like they're, they're gold jacket film room guys. Yeah. As it's like based on their, their, their performances in the past. Only two of them are still head coaches, but all of them have been very good <laughs> on the film room. So that was my five. Yeah, my five was I went with like a captain and then two offensive and two defensive guys to make sure you know everything's covered. My captain, so to speak, would be Dabo, just because I think he'd be a good fun personality to have in the room to help break up the uh, the yeah. X's and O's when needed. On the offensive side of things, I would like Lincoln Riley <clears throat> and uh, oh crap, who was the second? Oh, Dan Mullen. I'm sorry. So Lincoln oh, Riley yeah. and Dan Mullen were my two offensive coaches. I think they'd be fun breaking down what's going on on offense and defensively. I went with Nick Saban because I think, you know, 
he 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 knows the thing or two about defense. And I think that when we've seen him on TV, when it comes to that kind of stuff, I think he does a good job of breaking it down and, and explaining things. And then finally, I went with Kyle Whittingham because not only does he have a long history as a defensive coordinator, but at Utah, they've always cared about special teams. So I think maybe Witt could give us a little glimpse into the special teams, too. But, you know, I didn't want to just go with a straight-up special teams coordinator or anything. So to recap, Dabba Swinney, Dan Mullen, Lincoln Riley, Nick Saban, Kyle Whittingham. Boom. I think you win for most insightful. Yeah. I think that would would be – that's a very well-rounded, well-thought-out group. I mean, you had Dabba Swinney, Lincoln Riley, and Nick Saban. (laughs) a lot of playoff yeah. uh, appearances just there. I don't yeah. think I've got. I wonder who. I wonder who's playing in the championship game. All those. No, guys. no. Clearly, <laughs> clearly, this is a film room for like a Tuesday night Mac. Right. Right. Yeah. I. Right. Hey, Barton. We read off the uh, Cutcliffe and the Knuckleheads one more time. <laughs> the, the 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 dads and his four meatheads. It's uh, <laughs> it's Dak, David Cutcliffe, Will Muschamp, Kirby Smart, Pat Narduzzi, and Mario Cristobal. <laughs> <laughs> Someone Just like they take like a head, like headbutts over yeah. under is like three and a half. Yeah, I was gonna say they take a break and somehow they come back from break and there's a bloody nose. <laughs> they were wrestling. <laughs> Things got a little out now of control. Boys, stop roughhousing in here. <laughs> oh man, thank you, Tank Solomon. That was a that was a very good question. All right, and then uh, and then this one was specifically thrown at Tom, so you'll uh, you'll get to. It, you'll, you'll get to con- sort of roll this one out with the explanation necessary. Uh, Rohi Blanco asked Tom, compare the Power Five conferences to the top five European soccer leagues, Spain, England, Germany, Italy, France, and why, for example, uh, the ACC is equivalent to France uh, because only one team wins the league. Uh, well... First of all, I would like to say that this is a good question for me, considering I was watching two different soccer matches while we recorded this podcast, mm. one in Italy, one in England. And uh, I, I put some thought into this because I knew this question was coming, and I think it was pretty simple. I do not think that League One or the French League is is the ACC. But we'll start with the SEC, which is, I believe, the Premier League, because the Premier League is you know the best league of the European leagues and probably in the world it has the most talent it's got the most money behind it and it you know it wins the Champions League like last year in the Champions League the two finalists were both Premier League teams which is kind of like Georgia and Alabama playing in the college football playoff title game so I think that when you look to the best teams and the best players it's Premier League the SEC for the Big Ten we go to Italy for Serie A because this is a league that is more it's 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 more fundamentally sound. It's not as wide offensively. It's not as open. It's not as variable. There's a lot of, you know, you're going to see more defense, but that's not to say there aren't a lot of offensive teams. I just think that it's more of a, it, it reminds you of a Big Ten. It's more physical. You've, you've got to have bigger players to really survive in that league. Uh, the ACC is actually La Liga, which is Spain's league. And it's for a lot of the same reasons that you the questioner asked about how one league team wins the ACC. That's not true. I mean, the Clemson has been the dominant team this year, but there have been other teams. But like that, Spain is a league that is dominated by Real Madrid and Barcelona and to a lesser extent, Atletico Madrid. So there's one dominant team usually per season, but there are some other contenders that kind of cycle in and out. So that reminds me of the ACC. The Big 12 is the Bundesliga. That's the German league. And that is a league where defense is just kind of there sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> it's mostly about 
firing shots on goal yes. anywhere, anytime, and scoring lots and lots of goals. Like if I'm surprised that that league isn't more popular in the United States simply because it is the higher scoring league. So I, I feel like it would catch on. It's just like a lot of soccer leagues outside of England, that's a league that is dominated pretty much by one team, maybe two or three, and depending on the season. So there's not a whole lot of parity to it. The Pac-12 is the French league because it's yeah, not because there's only one team, Paris Saint-Germain, who dominates the league because Pac-12 isn't dominated by one program. It's had a few different programs that have cycled in and out. It's just that the narrative around the Pac-12 is that it's soft. And there's a narrative around the French League because it's France that it's soft. But really, there's, you know, like if you look for yellow cards and tackles and that kind of stuff, the French League's at the top of the list for most of these as far as kind of physical play and that kind of aspect. So I think that reminds me of the Pac-12 where people think it's soft, but if you actually watch the games, it's it's not as soft as you might think. It might not have the same size and overall talent level as like the SEC or the Big Ten, but it's still there's still some physicality to be found if you know what you're looking at. And then finally, just a bonus, I picked the Championship, which is the second league in England, the one below the Premier League, to encompass the entire group of five because what's great about the Championship, because my favorite team, Aston Villa, got relegated from the Premier League to the Championship for a few years, so I watched a lot of it compared to what probably most Americans have watched, is there is a ton of of parity in the championship. It's not like the premier league or the other leagues where there are the dominant teams because like group of five conferences, there are teams leaving being promoted a level up and teams being demoted every single year in that league. And, you know, teams from a lower league coming up. So there's a lot of turnover like you see with group of five programs where coaches are constantly being hired by power five. So it's hard for any one team to establish dominance. So every single year you see a lot more parity, like in the Mac what they had the thing where they've had a different, you know, title people in each division for like the last whatever years. They're like there hasn't been a team that's been to the MAC championship game in two straight years, I think, since Northern Illinois. I might be wrong there, but it's just that kind of parity where every single year there are new good teams, and the difference between the top and the bottom really isn't all that different. For example, one of the matches I just finished watching while we were recording was West Brom, the number first place team in the league very much likely going to be promoted to the Premier League after the season, lost to Stoke City, which is the 21st place team in the league. And that's the kind of thing that can happen in the championship a lot more often than you'll see in other leagues. So I think because of that, it's the group of five. And also one of my goals this offseason for going back to the last question of what we're going to do besides the book club is I'm going to get you guys into soccer. Okay. No, no, <laughs> no. That's That was that was as, as much soccer talk as I've been involved in in uh, – a decade, I'd say. So it, you are you really think you're going to get us into soccer on this podcast? If you'd yeah. asked me 10 years ago if I would know this much about soccer, I'd have had the same reaction you just did. But it has pretty much become like my, I'd say it's White Sox baseball, college football, and soccer. In that order? Yeah, I like it more than the NBA, the NHL. NFL, my whole interest is sur- surrounds the Bears and like fantasy. Like I'm not that interested in the NFL as a whole anymore. So yeah, no, I, I I literally watched while we were recording a podcast. I watched a soccer match between West Brom and Stoke City in the English Championship, and I watched a soccer match between Atlanta and SPAL in Italy's Serie A while recording a podcast. That should probably tell you my interest. Yes, it sounds like you're more interested you in that focused. than the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. come on. No. No, it's just know, on in the background. See, that's one of the great things about soccer, guys. You can do stuff while watching it. <laughs> well, as as uh, 
as I, Tom knows, I have been, uh, I'm, I'm kind of on a, a little bit of a two year really breaking in my bandwagon hockey stuff, you know, just a real bandwagon caniac here in Raleigh. So I'm, I'm opening, I'm, I'm willing to open doors, uh, to new rooms in my brain to embrace other sports. So Tom, like, yeah, I'm, I'm along for the ride. We can, you can teach and I'll listen. It we'll see whether or not it catches though. But and, and another benefit of soccer is, you know, like we, people were complaining about the title game the other night taking so long and games taking longer and longer. Soccer, same length every game. Running it's clock. T- two hours, you're done. So do you, guys, do you guys remember in the World Cup um, back, I don't know how many years ago it was, but it was when USA was playing like Germany and uh, I think the game was tied maybe or, or maybe the USA was up one and Germany had like a, a header really late in the game to either tie it or win and pool play and like that. Do you, do you remember this game? Either of you? No, I remember the United okay. States losing to well, Portugal. Well, here's how maybe it was maybe it was Portugal. It's 2014 sounds about right. I don't know who, but I'm pretty sure it was Germany because they were favored. Anyways, that w- in that game, I had I was gambling on that game, and I had like it was like I bet whatever it was like USA to tie the first half and win the second or something, whatever. Like, however, soccer gambling goes, and if if that and it, it was it was. USA had won that first half, and they had tied the second, and it was in, like, penalty minutes. And if I had won that bet, I would have won, like, a huge pot, like, big money there. They lost, or the, whatever, the bet lost. Germany tied them, or won, or whatever it was. And that was, like, the beginning of a huge tumble in my gambling fortunes over the next, like, year. And I had, like, the worst year of my life, and so soccer... It will, it will forever like why the be, hell were uh, you betting on soccer if you don't watch it because i almost won big <laughs> <laughs> and, and you got to shoot the score you're you playing you miss 100 percent of the shots you don't take betting on a sport you know nothing about <laughs> i had gone for like four years without without like paying my bookie and then that soccer game sent me in this downward spiral where i like couldn't win a game like had had no positive weekends for like a year it was bad I well, think Germany and America did play in the 2014 World Cup. Germany won one to nothing. All right, so then maybe that's what it was. Maybe maybe I bet like it would be a tie first half, tie second half, and then. But uh, anyway, I, I I think that's who it was. But it was a it was a tough one to swallow. I, I I get I do get enticed by the draw bets during group play, especially when the outcomes are already decided. Uh, it, by the second or third game, because what those payouts are like plus two sixty, plus three hundred, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Draw bets. We're just gonna spray the board with draw bets and root for ties. <laughs> well, here's what you do: you look for a match with a low total and bet the draw. There you go. Uh, breaking news: as we were on the podcast, Derek King makes it official. He's going to be going to Miami. Uh, Barton, you and I talked a little bit, I guess. Um, as we were discussing Rhett Lashley and what he could bring to the offense, I get, does Derek King arriving at Miami give you confidence that Miami's offense will be more explosive in 2020? Yes. Sure. I mean, he's a competent quarterback. Like that's what Miami's been missing. At least they have a competent quarterback now. And I'm not saying that he is, um, 
Like I, I think that he's not a perfect quarterback. It doesn't solve all the problems, but it gives them a fighting chance at least. Um, so, yeah, I'm, 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 I think that that's pair him up with uh, Rhett Lashley, and yeah, you got a chance there. Yeah, I think he's a much better fit for a Rhett Lashley offense than Jaron Williams or Nikosi Perry are. And I think that at the very least, you know, I, I wouldn't expect Williams to be at Miami much longer, to be honest with you, because mm-hmm. I think he had a decent enough season that if he wants to transfer, he'll he'll find interest elsewhere. It's just I think this kind of buys Miami a season as far as the, you know, the transition goes, because I, I Jaron Williams is not a mobile quarterback and I've never seen Rhett Lashley run an offense that didn't have one. Well, if you and Barton, you were asking if Miami was going to open it up, spread it out. They've got a, a quarterback who can who can do that now. Derek King announcing on Twitter that he is committed to Miami. Uh, a remi- the U is back. <laughs> the U is back. I think it was Portugal. I think it was the Portugal game. Yeah. It looks like they scored in like penalty minutes to to tie it up. I think that's what it was. Yeah, Ronaldo scored late. I think. Yeah, I remember that. That was uh, that was that was the the last United States centric World Cup watch party. Hasn't been another one since. That's right. Yeah, let's see. It finished two to two. Portugal <laughs> took a, a one nothing lead like five minutes in. And then the, the Americans took a two one lead with Dempsey scoring with the eighty first minute. And then in the fifth minute of stoppage time at the end of the second half, Varela scored to tie it up. So yeah, when, that's when was the World Cup before that? Two thousand ten? Would that have been? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That might have been the World Cup actually, because I think by two thousand fourteen. You know, my wife had caught too many outgoing checks uh, for my gambling, and I was I was starting to have to reel it in a little bit. 2010, I was still wide open. Still, <laughs> Barton Barton unleashed in 2010. We'll see. Can't hey, wait to get Barton into soccer and gambling on it again. I mean, you you can you Barton. Did you know the over unders in soccer are like a quarter? It's like over yeah. under two and a quarter goals. How does that work? It is so confusing. Like, uh, <laughs> like if it if you bet like uh, I'm if you bet like over two and a quarter and there's three goals scored, you win all your money back. But if there's two goals scored or whatever, you get like half your money back. It's oh, it's wow. very very strange. I don't do it. I don't understand. It. Yeah. Uh, to get into a future mailbag episode, you can do that by giving a five-star rating, a review, and in that review, put your question. It will be added to the mailbag. We appreciated all the questions. Uh, we will continue to come through them. We will continue to answer them. Uh, it's it's going to be part of this conversation. What are we doing in the offseason? We are having a conversation with you about this sport that we love so much, even when it has to do with coaches' film rooms and uh, – and why the SEC is the Premier League. You can follow all of us on Twitter. He's at Martin Simmons. He's at Tom Fernelli. I'm at Chip underscore Patterson. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you. Picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better 
because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 